Well, this morning I want to highlight God's past grace so that we might trust God for future grace in all of life's ups and downs. So we're going to do this morning, highlight God's past grace so that we would learn to trust God for future grace through all in, uh, of life's ups and downs. One pastor or theologian said about 500 years ago, quote, If we are satisfied with vague ideas about the Lord, we will find no transforming power communicated to us. If we're satisfied with vague ideas about the Lord, we will find no transforming power communicated to us. And so, friends, there are many who languish in the Christian life because they operate with vague ideas about God and about his promises. And so when life hits them, the vagaries of God lead them to doubt. And what they need, what we need, is specificity, clarity, and glory. And that's what we'll do this morning. We'll get specific. We'll get clear about who God is. We'll get clear and specific about His promises that have been kept. We'll get clear even about something of His glory. And we'll get clear about ourselves as well. And our need to trust Him and be forgiven. This morning, the big idea of the passage this morning, you've already heard it. Not one word has failed. Not one word has failed. Again, we're finding ourselves in the book of Kings. If you're new, just joining us, we've been walking through the books of the Kings. Now this will be our fourth week. Uh, this morning we come to the zenith of Israel's history. First Kings 8 is the mountaintop of ancient Israel. There will be rises and falls from here on out, but they will never have a moment as glorious as this one here in First Kings 8. But up until now, just to review, we've, we've been carefully tracing the promise of God to David. That's what Kings is doing. Carefully tracing God's promise to King David to have a son that would sit on the throne of Israel to rule God's people in the wisdom and the worth of Almighty God. Humbly, that king humbly serving them to display the eternal glory of God in the sight of the nations. That's what the king was to be doing. The Lord delivered Solomon. Remember, God made that promise to David to have that son to do that, what we just talked about. The Lord did deliver Solomon, the promised son of David, to that throne we've seen. Solomon asked for wisdom in order to govern God's people in the way that they should go. The Lord gave him more wisdom than any king had ever known before him. He then, Solomon then began to fulfill that other aspect of the promise to build a house for the name of God, a temple of sorts. And last week we saw that temple constructed. We saw that building completed and it's complex. There was only one step left before God would then uh, descend upon that building and then begin to dwell in that temple. One thing left that we'll consider today. God needed to have the representative throne of his to enter into that most holy place. Namely, to have the Ark of the Covenant to go into that holy place, most holy place, and God's glory would descend upon that temple. That's what we read about today. God moves into the temple. Take a look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem. To bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast of the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the Ark. And they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, 
and all the holy vessels, vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. So we're kind of transitioning from tabernacle to temple here. And King Solomon, and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Guys, just try and imagine what this might have been like. Try to use your biblical imagination to think about this moment. Try and imagine yourself standing in those crowds watching all of this go down. The the sun above shining brightly down upon the land that was promised to Abraham centuries before. There they are standing in that same land. The stench of thousands of sacrifices wafts across you. All of the nation of Israel gathered together as one. Your leaders up in front, all in hushed tones as King Solomon stands before them all. And the rays of the sun bouncing off of the browns, lily-like columns as the silver and gold vessels glisten and gleam in the sun. And as the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the priests who themselves are decorated with great splendor. Walking into this newly, freshly made temple. And you, a good Israelite, as you watch those priests carry that ark, you know what's inside of that ark, that gold-plated ark. You know what's inside of it. You know that inside of that document or inside of that covenant are those old covenant documents, as it were. Two stone tablets that had ten words on them, the Ten Commandments. The same ones given to Moses centuries before. That's inside. And they're carrying it inside the temple. As you stand there in that place, you can hear a pin drop as the millions of Israelites and their leaders watch as the priests ascend up into the temple. And then you watch them disappear inside of the temple, carrying that ark. And as they walk inside of that temple, they walk through the holy place inside of the gold, gold encased walls. They walk through there and they walk past the table of the bread of presence. They walk past the lighted menorahs. They walk past the altar of incense as the pleasant aroma fills that hall. The priests then go up into the most holy place. Remember, one room separated by a wall where the most holy place would be where God would dwell. Those priests then descend into that most holy place underneath those cherubim wings again the temple would have been roughly about the same dimensions as this building they walk into the most holy place they set the ark down underneath the wings of the cherubim the the priest then turn around close the door as it were they walk past that incense through the gold-plated walls out of the door and the second those priests walk out of the door the glory of god descends and whoosh god's glory descends 
What a moment. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The priest, it says, cannot even stand. The weight of this moment is so heavy. That cloud so indicative of the weight of God being in their midst. And it is at this point that your king, King Solomon, the son of David, as you stand there, speaks up amidst this moment in hushed tones. First Kings 8, verse 12. Then King Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So friends, everything was coming together. All of God's promises were seeming to be fulfilled in this moment. You had God's people back in the land that again was promised to Abraham hundreds of years before when they left from Egypt. Or after Abraham, then they went to Egypt, then they come back. Same land, they're there, they're back in the land. The people were as numerous as the stars in the sky. Same also God promised, made that promise to David. They had rest, we learn, on every side just as God had promised they would. No enemies at this point. The promised son of David was on the throne, ruling wisely. The temple, the house for the name of God, it had been finished. The Ark of the Covenant had been preserved, placed in the most holy place. The dwelling place of God was with his people. Everything was right. It was all coming together. As a matter of fact, go ahead and read the last sentence of chapter 8. Verse 65. So Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him. A great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of of Egypt before the Lord our God. Seven days. On the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes. Joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. And they went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. Guys, there really is no parallel to this moment. It's difficult as I'm trying to think about ways to try to communicate the gravity of all of this kind of coming together. There's no way to really compare this. Maybe the closest thing that we might come to it, and it's not even really close, is maybe a good family reunion. Maybe back in the days when your grandparents even had good health. And there you are, when you're younger, you have no care in the world. Right. And everybody had created and made the best foods. Right. You got homemade rolls and cakes and pies abounding and you get to stay up late way past your bedtime into the summer evening and everything was right. But even that 
doesn't even begin to approach the gravity of this moment. Because you at that family reunion didn't have the glory of God dwelling powerfully and visibly in your midst. Friends, the historical and redemptive weight of this moment is unparalleled just as the God that we are reading about is unparalleled. Listen to what, listen to what Solomon says about God in chapter 8 verse 23. If you're wondering who God is, if you're new to the Christian faith and investigating, you want to know what God we believe in, here you go. Solomon says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Keeping covenant, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant, David, my father, what you declared him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. There again, calling upon the Davidic covenant. But note that the author is hitting here is on this power and the glory and the faithfulness of the one true God. Guys, we would be wise to meditate on this reality ourselves. God fulfilled his promises. As we read in this passage, he kept, he fulfilled his promises. He made hundreds and hundreds of promises before with great specificity. And none of them, nothing actually got in its way. Including, by the way, including the unfaithfulness of Israel. Even they would not get in the way of him fulfilling all of his promises with great specificity. The Lord was so faithful to Israel that Solomon could say in verse 56, not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word, not one word of all his promises have failed. Not one. And he's made many. And they saw it and they knew it. But the reality is, I'm sure there would have been plenty of days had you been an Israelite when you would have wondered if he had failed his promises. Imagine being an Israelite in about the year, let's say year 200 of the enslavement and exile in Egypt. What would that have been like if you'd have been living in the 200th year of the enslavement? Surely there would have been plenty of days when you would have wondered if God had failed his promises. Imagine standing with your back to the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming after you. You'd have plenty of worries to tempt you into believing that the Lord had indeed failed his promises. Imagine living in the times of the judges where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. There's no authority, no king. Surely, surely in those days you would have wondered if the Lord was sovereign, if he was merciful, if he was good to remember his promises for your good and his glory. Surely in those days you would have wondered. You would have been tempted to doubt. Or imagine the day when you learned that the army of Israel had lost to the Philistine armies on the army on the battlefield. And not only let's say, let's say you lost your husband, but you also heard that that Ark of the Covenant was stolen. That the judge Eli had died, that everything seemed lost. Surely on that day, if you would have gotten that news, like the wife of Phineas, who named her son that was born that day, Ichabod, the glory of God departed. Surely on that day, you would have questioned the sovereign goodness of God to keep his promises. And none of them, of course, none of this is to mention the daily drudgeries and disappointments and distractions of life in general. Surely, 
it would have been easy to conclude that God on many of those days hadn't fulfilled his many words. Surely you would have been tempted to think that he had failed. But in the end, we see that he didn't. Not one word failed. Not one. And had you been standing there amidst the throngs on that faithful day with King Solomon, with the glory cloud thundering before you amidst the radiant beauty of the temple, you would have said, yes. When you heard Solomon prayed that, you would have said, amen. It's true. He's done it. He's kept covenant and he's done so in steadfast love. You heard Joey pray for it earlier, but. I can think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in southwest Florida that woke up Thursday morning to all their possessions gone. Will they say with Solomon, not one word has failed. Or I think about maybe the woman in China whose pastor husband is jailed for his faith. Will she say, not one word has failed. Or think about the little girl that saw her Christian mother abducted by Muslim militants in Nigeria. Will she say, not one of your words have failed? Friends, they will say that. If they do as Solomon does here. And take the big moments of clear fulfillment to speak into the unclear moments when it seems like he hasn't fulfilled his word. Taking the clear Moments of fulfillment and crystallize them in hearts and minds and in journals and in conversations. So as to speak into the unclear moments. The clear speaks into the unclear. The grace of times past speaks into the uncertainty of the present. Friend, look at verse 24 of chapter 8. Solomon says, you have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You have kept. You spoke with your mouth. And with your hand have fulfilled it this day. God promised with his mouth and he kept his promises with his hands. In other words, he not just said he would do it. He actually crafted it with his hands. So that it was done. So that it worked out. And so beloved, if you and I are going to remain steadfast through the lean and longing years of this life, you and I must do the same thing that Solomon's doing here. The author is calling us to do here. If you are satisfied with vague ideas about the Lord and his promises, you will find no transforming power communicated to you, or at least very little. We must zoom out regularly and look at God's past grace with specificity. And not only uh, must you do that about your own life, Think about all the different ways in which God has done that for all of his people around the world. Notice that God has done it right here in 1 Kings. Like mark this. Make this be a moment, a chapter you come back to. To remember that God is faithful to his promises. Remember it there. Count it. Journal it. But also go back and look at Christ. See how faithful he was in Christ. Look around at the church family to be reminded of all the ways that he's been faithful to his family. Guys, do you know how many times that he has shown up in the course of history or in your life particularly? Do you know how many times he's done that and kept good on his promises, made good on his promises? He has not only promised with his mouth, but he has spoken with his hands. Beloved, this is not just Israel's history. This is your history. It's your history. 
This is your family story because this is the story of your God. The Bible is not some fairy tale of the by and by. It's a historic journal of the real events of your family's redemptive history. And while there are plenty of pages in this journal where your family wonders where God is, see the Psalms. There are slogs of time like this one where your family wrote down for you. God fulfilled. God kept. God spoke with his mouth and with his hand. God keeps covenant. And he did so then and he's doing it now. He's written it down for you. He's written it down for us as a church. The individual circumstances of your life cannot be louder than three millennia of God's specific faithfulness to the throngs of his people on every continent. And beloved, I know that it's hard at times. I know that it's hard at times. I've been there. I'll be there. Especially when things are dark and difficult, when it seems like the psalmist that God has forgotten you. But that's when you have to come back here. To places like 1 Kings 8. That's when you have to move from vague ideas about God and his promises. To specific applications of his faithfulness. So that on the days of doubt and difficulty you can say with Paul. I am perplexed. But I am not driven to despair. I am struck down. But I am not destroyed. Though my outer self is wasting away, my inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, which doesn't seem light, it is preparing not only for me, but for all of God's people, an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. You've got to say that. And the way that you say that is because you remember the specific promises that he's been faithful to. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. They're all of them. And there's hundreds of them. Not one word failed in Christ. And the promises with Christ. Jesus was promised to be born of a virgin. And he was. In a small city of Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah. And he was. He was to be born of the line of Abraham and of David. He was to commit no sin and die a sinner's death by having his body pierced as an atoning death for sinners who would believe. He was promised to defeat sin and death and he be given a throne that was greater than David's. Where all authority would be his and the government would be upon his shoulders. And it was and it is. And he would build a house. Jesus would build a house. It was promised that he would build a house that was greater than the house of Solomon that he built. Because it would be a people, not a building, a people whose hearts would be transformed from stone to that of flesh by the power of the Spirit. All of these things were accomplished and more. Not one word failed. Not one. God has kept covenant in his steadfast love. And insofar as you are in Christ, friend, he has made a thousand promises to you that he is keeping, that he has kept, and he will continue to keep for you. You have to know those promises. You've got to be specific about them, guys. Not live in the vagaries. And see those promises so that you'll not lose heart. An example of this, if, if my wife was out of town... And I got a phone call from a friend telling me that they ran across her having dinner with another man. The only way that I could get through that moment would be by recounting all the many specific ways that my wife had been faithful to me. 
by reminding myself that she was not only faithful, but she did it in steadfast love. That would be what would get me through that moment until I talked to her again. Too many of us live with vague ideas about God's faithfulness and God's promises, which makes sense why it would be so easy to doubt when things get hard. Not one word has failed. Not one. But another way of evaluating the faithfulness of God is by looking at the way God rescued you from your own sins. We look at how he's been faithful to his promises in the past, but also we can look at his faithfulness to forgive us of all of our sins. Take a look at the next movement of Solomon. Look at that transition in verse 27. You'll see it there. But there's a transition. Amidst all of these vaunted statements that were true, Solomon has recognized the faithfulness of the one true God. He's been faithful to his promises to David. He's been faithful even to his promises to Moses. But he knows, Solomon knows, the work is not over. Look at verse 26. He asked the Lord to then confirm his promises. In other words, he's saying, you've done it, Lord. You've been doing it, so keep doing it. Stay with us here in this temple. And then we get this in verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. You give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day. This place of which you said, my name shall be there. So that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. See, Solomon recognizes the kind of Venn diagram nature of this temple. He recognizes that there is no one like the one true and living God. The greatness of the glory of God cannot be contained in temples made by hands. He cannot even be contained in the earth. He transcends all known reality. He is before all time and in him all time exists. He is the Alpha and the Omega. All things exist by him and in him they hold together. So they would be fools. We would be fools to think that he could be contained in some little tiny building. Even if it is plated with gold. Solomon knows that. He's aware of that. That then moves him to make requests that are curious, though understandable. From verses 31 to 53, Solomon lays out all of these different scenarios. You'll notice there's seven of them. You'll see it there. You can mark it by the here in heaven, here in heaven, here in heaven, here in heaven. He marks out all these scenarios. And friends, this is what happens, by the way. When you meditate on the greatness of God, which is what Solomon does, you meditate on the fact that he's one, true, and holy, that he transcends all things, especially temples. This is what happens. You start thinking about your sin. So many people have small thoughts about God because they have small thoughts about their sin, or they have small thoughts about their sin because they have small thoughts about God. But not Solomon. He gets it. And that then leads him to think about prayers of forgiveness. But nevertheless, it's a curious thing to be praying about on this day of dedication. And the reason why it's curious is because this should be the day that they have the most confidence about their future. Right? Everything's coming together. Everything's great. But Solomon, on this day of dedication, seems to reveal a crack in the paint, as it were. He seems to recognize 
Something's amiss, could be amiss. He already, Solomon already sees the sin that is going to interrupt their covenant relationship. He already knows it. He knows it's coming and he's asking God in advance to forgive their sin when his people, when they sin, when they pray towards this place and ask for forgiveness. He's already asking for that. And I want you to stop and think about how odd this must have been at this moment. Think about how odd it must have been. What we normally do, what do we know, what do we normally do at the dedication of buildings? Right? If you imagine going to the dedication of a library, right? The librarian stands up and just waxes eloquent, right? All these great things that are going to happen at the library. Little children will come in here and read books and adults will come in and read books about philosophy and go from here and transform society. It's going to be great. And they cut the ribbon and everybody applauds and you feel great about this new library, right? You don't talk about the fact that all these people are going to come here and look at stuff on the internet they shouldn't be looking at and destroying stuff. They ain't going to talk about it on that day, but it's going to happen. Same thing if you go to a new like school building, right? The principal comes up and talks about all the kids that are going to come inside of this school building. They're going to come and be educated. And then from here, they'll go into the halls of Congress and in the halls of businesses and do all these amazing things. And your heart would swell right on that day. But that's not what Solomon does. He emphasizes all the goodness of God and the presence of that glory cloud. But when it came to their part of the marriage, as it were, he emphasizes the impending disruption in the relationship. He recognizes the dominance and the disruption of our sins and he wants forgiveness. And most significantly of all, look at verse 46. Look at his last request, or at least what the author puts is the last request of those seven. Of all things, on this day of dedication, he talks about exile from the land. (laughs) Solomon makes this very significant admission there in verse 46. And in essence, verse 46 says, let me read it. "If If they sin against you, Israel, for there is no one who does not sin. So basically what Solomon is saying is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he turns, Solomon turns to this commentary on exile, on leaving the land by going away. Try and imagine how awkward this must have been at the dedication. This is like saying at a wedding reception, after all of the, all the wonderful things, all right, if and when they get divorced, right? Wait, what? The author inserts this portion of Solomon's prayer because he already knows that not only will Solomon fail the law, look at verse 25. Verse 25, he talks about how if the son of Solomon or son of David fails, well, Solomon does that. He also knows that all of Israel is going to fail. And remember, 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 the author already knows the destruction of this building as he's writing about it. He already knows it. You say, Nathan, you keep telling me that. Well, let's fast forward in the movie. All right, let's fast forward the movie. Go to the end of the book. Remember, First and Second Kings is, is not should not be two books. It's one book. Go to the end of the book. I know I'm doing something that you shouldn't do, but we won't even get here till March. So you'll probably forget about it. So take a look at Second Kings 25. This is the end of the book. This is how the book ends. This is the ending of the movie. All right, we get to the end of the movie. This is the end. Remember my, remember my connection. Solomon's praying on the day of the dedication about exile. Chapter 25, verse 8 of 2 Kings. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. 
He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. And in that chapter, if you go back and look at it, you'll see that all of the people of Israel are exiled east once again. Just like Adam and Eve went east of Eden, so they go east of the temple yet again. Temple comes down, people are exiled yet again because of their unfaithfulness. But even before we get to the events of 2 Kings 25, we read in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11 something else significant. Remember on this day of the day of dedication, the glory of God comes and descends upon the temple. Well, in Ezekiel 10 and 11, we learn about how the glory of God and the presence of God exits the temple. So the very thing that Solomon prays about comes eventually to fruition. And I want you to imagine, now get yourself out of that day of dedication. Now imagine yourself sitting east of, east, well, east of Eden. I guess it is kind of east of Eden. East of Jerusalem, sitting in Babylon as one of those exiles. Imagine reading this, 1 Kings 8, and listening to Paul, sorry, Solomon's prayer about exile. Imagine reading that. When you got to the part about Solomon's prayer and the dedication of the temple, it would have seemed so ironic and so prophetic. And at the same time, so hopeful. Right? So hopeful because it would communicate to you that it holds out hope beyond that building. It holds out hope for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. It builds anticipation that a day is coming where the temple will be rebuilt and God will once again dwell with his people in love and unity. When would that be? Enter Luke chapter 2. Hear it afresh, beloved, when it's not Christmas. Where the child known as the son of David is born in the city of David. And it said, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch of their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And it goes on. And a multitude of the heavenly hosts were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God, beloved, had once again descended in a glory cloud. Only this time it was not in a temple made with hands. It was out amongst a bunch of shepherds in a field. And his glory also descended nearby. In the person of Christ. But unlike that day in 1 Kings 8. When the glory cloud descended. This time in the person of Christ. In the second person of the Trinity. The Godhead. It was shrouded with flesh. You couldn't see it. Until you saw it. John says of Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, templed among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Beloved Jesus, the true and lasting temple descended to the earth yet again to build a temple that could never be destroyed. 
It would house the glory of the Lord. Jesus would come, his, again, his flesh shrouding his glory till they got to that little moment on the Mount of Transfiguration where he lifted up the skin and let them see his glory. Then it went back. Jesus was on the earth teaching authoritatively, loving beautifully. He kept covenant. He fulfilled promises. And because he was faithful and true, he was able to atone for the sins of the people for you and me. Because unlike those Sheep and oxen that Solomon sacrificed in 1 Kings 8. This sacrifice would stay because it was perfect. God himself dwells on the earth in glory. Never fails. And of all people, Christ, that same lamb of God, shed his blood for your sin. So that... His glory might not dwell in temples made with hands, but in your body. Are you kidding me? We're the ones that sinned against him. God keeps his promises. Solomon knew that for God to dwell with his people, his people needed to perfectly obey his word. If you look at, go back and look at 1 Kings 8 verse 58. Where Solomon requests that God would incline, I love that, would incline their hearts to follow him. That's a great prayer, by the way. Solomon, in other words, knew that his people didn't have hearts that were inclined towards following him. And so on the day of dedication, Solomon knew that for the glory of God to dwell amongst the people of God, he knew they would need forgiveness. And that forgiveness that he prayed for could never be atoned again by the blood of sheep and oxen. Because none of them again were perfect. It pointed. The author is intentionally and consciously pointing the reader forward to the temple that would dwell among us. And be sacrificed on our behalf so that we might become the temple of God. A better house for the name of the Lord. So that our hearts might be turned from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. As the new covenant. Right, So in other words, as the Ark of the Covenant starts walking in the Old Covenant with the Old Covenant and the glory comes, God, by the power of the Spirit, because of the sufficient work of Christ, He comes up and comes inside of you that believe. Poof! I'll never forget Alec Voloshin sitting in a community group one time and I was explaining the gospel to him and he'd heard it a thousand times before and his eyes just lit up. And he goes, I think it just clicked. God moved in! The ark came into his heart and saved him. Because of the forgiveness that is purchased for us that believe with the blood of God's very own son, it is a covenant, by the way, that is far better. It's a better, the new covenant is a better covenant because it's built on better promises and it's built on better promises because it's permanent. It's a permanent covenant. It's not like this one that we're reading about in 1 Kings 8. It's changing all the time and doesn't have confidence because it seems to fail and people are being exiled. You're in Christ. He keeps you to the end. Permanent. The gospel of Jesus Christ was the cornerstone of a house that could never be destroyed because it's built on better promises. Permanent promises. I wanted to read this whole thing, but I'm trying to make these first Kings sermons shorter. I'm working on it. I wanted to read the whole thing. So go back and read 2 Corinthians 3 today. I'll give you one verse. I want to give you more. Self-control, Nathan. 2 Corinthians 3.11. Paul says, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, insert in your mind 1 Kings 8. 
temple, gold, priests, glory cloud. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, yes, it did, much more will what is permanent have glory. Jesus' glory was far greater than Solomon's because he was before Solomon. And yet, as one pastor said of Christ, he who was in heaven lived in the world. He to whom prayer was made prayed himself night and day. He whom the angel, all the angels of heaven and creatures worship fulfilled all the duties with which the worship of God required. He who was Lord and master of the house became the lowliest servant in the house, performing all the menial duties. This, friends, not only reveals the faithfulness of God as it was promised, it not only reveals his glory, but beloved, this is what your salvation and my salvation required. Solomon knew that we could never dwell with God as his people in our own strength, by our own willpower. The law was a gift, but it revealed the requirement, but it could not empower the obedience. Solomon already knew that on 1 Kings 8, when it was de- uh, temples being dedicated. The author already knew that, which is why he constructed the story the way he did. And so t- I speak to you, to my unbelieving friend. You need to know that. No amount of any amount of works will get you to have God dwell with you. Your sins will far outweigh all of your good works, which is why the Bible says all of your good works are like dirty rags. You need to know that, friend. See, this is the one, Christians are honest. They are the one group of people on planet Earth that are honest about the human condition. We cannot do it. We are too broken, including this guy, which is why God had to come and do it himself, which is amazing that he did that because he didn't have to, but he did it in Christ. And atone for our sin. So on the day of the dedication of the temple, he wrote of God's faithfulness. The author did. He wrote of God's faithfulness and glory and our need for forgiveness so that we in our sin might trust that God would be faithful to forgive us and the true and lasting Solomon whose kingdom never fails and whose temple is permanent. See, beloved, God's faithfulness in times past. See what your salvation required. Beloved, it required the very body and blood of the Son of God. And the stubborn reality is, beloved, that as God has been faithful 10,000 times to all of his promises, you and I have not been. We have not been faithful. Like Solomon, we have all made compromises in our doctrine and our practices. You heard us confess that. We do that every week. We ought to be doing that every day. We have seen the clear teaching of our faithful God, and we have decided to affirm things that God hates so that we could fit in. We have known that God told us to not give in to our fleshly desires, and we have. Not once or twice, but dozens of times. We have been sinfully angry with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, with our family, with our church members. We have indulged our flesh with graphic images and gossip and slandered behind people's backs. We have considered other groups of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as somehow less than us, like a lesser class, and we're kind of better than them. Even though we know, Zephaniah 3.17, God loves them, God died for them, and God sings over them. We somehow think we're better than them. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 39 even says, if you look at 1 Kings 8, verse 39 says, God knows all of our hearts on the planet. We don't deserve any good gift. And so though not one word of God has failed... 
Countless words of our words have failed him. And it is only until we start to consider this disparity that we can really begin to appreciate the tremendous amounts of grace and mercy that God has shown us in Christ. Israel did not deserve the presence of God's glory, just as we don't deserve the presence of God's glory in our lives. And yet God came to us, dwelt among us so that he could live with us. And no matter how many times we might sin against him, he continues to be faithful to us. He continues to keep covenant. And so just as we remember God's faithfulness in times past with specificity, beloved, we must also remember with specificity all the ways God has forgiven us in our sins in Christ Jesus and made us his temple. You got to remember that. Again, if we live with vague ideas about the Lord, we will find no transforming power communicated to us. But if with frequent looks with specificity, we stare into the face of the greater and permanent glory of Christ and consider all the ways that he has fulfilled his promises and considered all the ways that he has forgiven us of our sins, consider all the ways that he has shared his glory with us, a greater glory than Solomon's temple, in order that chapter 8, verse 43, in order that he shares it with us, in order that all the peoples of the earth might know him, display his glory, fear him, walk in his ways. He's done that to display his glory to the nations. When we think about those things, this ought to lead us to worship and a glad heart of obedience to him. Don't live with vague ideas about the greatness and the glory of Christ to us or to you specifically. Stare at those promises until you see the weight of glory in the face of Christ. And that is going to mean, guys, you're going to have to turn down the noise out there. It's too loud in most of our lives. Turn it down. And turn it up in here. Turn it up in here. Stare into his face. Let those promises and those words speak louder to you. Louder to us than all of that. And then we can see an impact. Even more than we already have seen. Get specific about God's faithfulness in times past. See his promises fulfilled. Write them down. Look at them. Get specific about God's forgiveness to you in times past. Write them down. Rejoice in them. See them satisfied in the cross of Christ. And then drink in the glory of God in the face of Christ. And be transformed, as 2 Corinthians 3 goes on to say, from one degree of glory to another. As you stare into the glory of the face of Christ. So, beloved, as we have considered these amazing things, God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, I leave you with verse 66 again. This is our call to us as a congregation until we come back tonight. What do we do with this? How do we walk away from this? Verse 66. May we bless the king. And go to our homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to David, his servant, and to Restoration Church, his people. Forgive us, God, for how quickly we doubt you. Quickly we shake our fist at you. And we haven't taken the time to just be specific about how many times you've been faithful. Not only to us, but to your people in general. 
Forgive us for the ways in which we just brush over all of the ways that you have forgiven us. And thank you for the greater temple, Christ the Lord, that has made us his temple, that we might display the infinite worth of Christ to a watching world. Thank you for the glory. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your honesty. And teach us as your people to know your promises and see how you fulfilled them. Teach us as your people to be reminded of the ways, specific ways you've forgiven us so that we would trust you going forward when hurricanes blow over our own houses. So that we would testify to a greater house that can never fail, that is coming and is already here. We love you, Jesus. You did all of this. You are the greater Solomon. You are the greater temple. Our hope is in you. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.